With all that said and done, Hebrews chapter 12. Let's pray and then we'll, uh, we'll dig in. Father, we pray that as we uh, come to your word again today, Lord, that you would bless us. We pray that you would uh, enable us by the illumination of your Holy Spirit to see, shine light on your word, Lord, we pray that he would enable us to understand and to see, not just intellectually, but to, to see how to apply to our lives, Lord. May the truths that we study this day impact us, impact our lives, make a difference practically, and may you be glorified through our lives, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are back in Hebrews 12. We've getting towards the end of this penultimate chapter. We've got just a couple of weeks to go. This week we're looking from verse 18, and it begins with the word for, and therefore we're going to look back and get our context to make sure that we understand the path that is flowing here. Last week's sermon was, I hope, one of predominantly encouragement. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, verse 12. Make straight paths for your feet. What is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. There is this encouragement to, to press on, to keep going. And because of the discipline of God in face of the discipline of God in face of the trials and difficulties that God allows to come into our lives, there is this, this encouragement to keep going. And um, we were encouraged to strive for peace to strive for holiness, to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace that is available from God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. And again, just a reminder, that doesn't mean being bitter. That means that through any rebellion and through any idolatry and through any rejection of God, that something that is going to bring about a source of bitterness, something that's going to cause harm, would happen in the church. And there we have our responsibility one to another to make sure that none of us wander off. And that is then concluded in verse 16, specifically that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And we spoke about that last time. We spoke about Esau and how he had the rights of the firstborn and the blessings that would come. And that one day he was hungry and he decided that in his extreme hunger, in his, um, in his uh, haste, I think to some degree, there's no doubt that it was a wealthy family. There were other tents. There were places he could have gone further to got food. But he wanted that food then and now. And so Jacob said, I'll give you my lentil stew, but I'll only give it to you if you give me your birthright. We'll make a swap. We'll make an exchange. And it's just worth saying again before we move on from it, that, you know, I, and again, the, the connection here with sexually immoral, with fornication, is that sexual sin is just such a typical example of a sin that seems desperately needed in the heat of the moment, but then leads to a period of regret. Verse 17 talks about Esau later wanting to repent, but not having the opportunity, though he sought it with tears. 
And so whether it's sexual sin or any other sin, any other unholiness, we do not want to be making decisions that, is go- that are going to be appealing in the moment that will cause regret afterwards. And, and, and here's the thing with this birthright. He didn't recognize the value of what he had. He had something of great worth. He had something of great value. But he considered a bowl of soup to be more important than that. And so it is that with that as our context, it's linked in verse 18 with the word for to what we're going to look at today. And the linking between last week's passage and this week's passage, the, the connection between the two, the flow of argument, is all about this point of value. Do you not understand, the author is saying, how much you have and of what great worth and value it is? And so... This is the issue that they have been dealing with, the the shift from Old Covenant to New Covenant. They're the first generation to experience that. And they're already tempted to go back to the Old Covenant way. And so here in these verses before us, he is once again showing the contrast between Old and New Covenant. And he does it in, in a somewhat different way here. So let's look at verse 18. For you have not come... To what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, at first glance, this is one of those passages that when you read through it, if you're following a Bible reading plan, you're like, what on earth is he talking about? What's going on here? For the Jews, they would have known exactly what was being spoken because this is a reference to Exodus chapter 19. So you know what we're about to do. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 19. While we're turning there, by the way, and you're finding Exodus 19, just after Genesis, it should be fairly easy to find. If you're looking to buy a new Bible, you're looking to choose a new Bible, I always recommend Bibles with those center margins. And sometimes you get these center margins that have all the cross-referencing. And then when you're reading these passages, you can say, that sounds a bit weird. I bet he's referencing Old Testament here. And there in the center margin, you'll have the passage that's being referred to. Sometimes they can be a bit hit and miss, and it can be a very loose link to a passage, and I'm like, no, I don't think he's referencing that at all. Sometimes it's just a connection for you in your studies as you're considering issues, but sometimes it's really helpful. And I, and I think that if you're, if you're uh, having a Bible for studying with, then it's a really useful tool to have. Anyway, that aside, you should have found it by now. Exodus chapter 19, I'm going to pick up reading in verse, uh, well, midway through verse Uh, No, let's just go back a bit further. Let's go back um, to verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded him. 
And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord, that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Okay, this is what we're dealing with in Exodus 19. We have referenced Exodus 19 already in Hebrews um, because this passage, some of you may remember some of the, these things. Specifically, last time it was referenced was when we were emphasizing the fact that the people said, we're going to do what God has said we should do. We're going to do that. And this is the agreement of the people to the laws of God and the signing, <coughs> pardon me, the signing of the new covenant, of the old covenant, rather, the old covenant signing. So this is the initializing of the old covenant, the authenticating of the old covenant. Notice already that when God is coming, when Yahweh is coming, he's coming physically. He's coming in a thick cloud. People are going to hear when he speaks to Moses. When, when God speaks, and you know, this is one of my little bugbears, that Christians use the phrase, God speaks so loosely, that when we read it in our Bibles, we don't really understand what it means. Yahweh is going to speak to Moses. And Moses will hear him with his ears, which are the organs that God gave us so that we could hear when people speak. That's what's going on. So God speaks to Moses. He often did speak to Moses. And Moses audibly heard. What's different this time is it's going to be in a public setting and everybody is going to hear what God says to Moses. Everybody is going to see the presence of God. And... Uh, they're going to find it a little tough. So, keeping on going. When Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh, um, Yahweh said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. Now, obviously, God knows that the people have said, we're going to follow you, but Moses is representing them and this is a formal acceptance of the covenant. And so they're going to prepare, they're going to consecrate themselves, they're going to wash, they're going to do these symbolic things to make themselves um, symbolically, religiously uh, holy, and they're going to be ready. And on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. I loved picturing this kind of stuff that their God is going to descend in a cloud, his voice is going to speak, and he's, they're there by the side of the mountain, and he's going to come physically, visibly, in this form, above the mountain, so that the people can see and hear him. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Okay, so God is coming down to his people to connect with them, to, to authenticate this covenant that's going to be made. The Mosaic covenant, the old covenant between God and between Israel. And so God's coming, but he's still a holy God. He's still distinct. He's still separate. And so though he comes on the mountain, the mountain becomes, as it were, a temple. The mountain becomes a holy place. And therefore, they're not allowed to go up the mountain. They're not even allowed to touch the edge of the mountain. Otherwise, look what happens. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. 
So when someone has defiled themselves, as it were, by touching the mountain, when they've done, no one else is then going to touch them, but rather he shall be stoned or shot. And if you're worried here about the fact that guns weren't yet invented, arrows shoot as well. It's that verb. It's the shooting of an arrow. And, and so this person is going to be killed. And not just a person. With a beast or man, he shall not live. So when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. But as they know now, not to touch it. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, and do not go near a woman. So there, there's a, a, a ceasing, a temporary ceasing of, uh, of uh, sexual relations, I believe that refers to. And then in the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. So they've been told to go forward when the trumpet sounds a blast, and now there is this very loud trumpet blast, and it sounds like it's, it's not them blowing the trumpet, but rather God doing this. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's this thick cloud, there is this visible manifestation of God. It's a... Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, this is where they get this idea of the cloud and faces melting and stuff. This is the, this is the visible manifestation of God. You keep away because death comes to all who are unholy. And uh, so they, the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. <laughs> I, I love the phrasing of that. It's like, hey, I want you to meet my friend that I've been hanging out with. Come, come meet Yahweh. And it's like, Moses has been representing the people to Yahweh and representing Yahweh to the people. He's been acting as this, as this, this um, medium between them. And, he's been, and the meeting of Yahweh and God has not been this public thing. And it's like he's inviting them up to the edge of the mountain to say, now you get to see who you're making a covenant with. Now you get to see the power of Almighty God. That's not to say they haven't seen his power. They saw the visible manifestation of God, did they not, as they were leaving Egypt. It was the visible manifestation of God that led them to the edge of the Red Sea. God then showed his power and his might by parting the Red Sea and additionally by then closing it back down and drowning the pursuing armies of the Egyptians. So they've seen God. So I think that everything that we're seeing here is expressing to us that this is a manifestation of God that goes beyond what they've already seen. This is something that instills fear and instills dread. And so he says, come and meet Yahweh. Come and see him in a way that they haven't seen before. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. This isn't clouds specifically. This is something very distinct. This is smoke. This is not normal. This isn't something that can be explained in nature. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So to add to your thunder, lightning, smoke, cloud, and everything else, you've now got earthquake as well. 
the trembling of the mountain. And not an earthquake that just affects everything all around, but that specifically the mountain itself is trembling. And, uh, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. It's very hard to picture this scene. But imagine this group of Israelites who've come out. We're talking at the very least hundreds of thousands of people gathered around the base of a mountain. And the smoke and cloud descends. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's this mysterious trumpet sound that just gets louder and louder and louder and louder. And the people are shaking. And they don't know if they're shaking just because they're shaking because they're petrified or whether it's the mountain shaking them because everything's shaking around them. This is, a, this is a, a scary scene that is being painted for us here. And then Moses speaks and the voice of God they hear audibly mixed in with the thunder. And Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The voice echoing in this trumpet, getting louder and louder, and a thunder, and all of this noise. And God says, Moses, come up. And all the people know that God has this relationship with Moses, that they can believe him, that they can trust him. That when Moses says, God has said this, Yahweh has spoken, they're going to believe him because of this day. This is the inauguration of the old covenant. And these are the, the things being mentioned here in Hebrews. So let's turn back to Hebrews now with that fresh in our minds. Hopefully we've painted a picture. There's a scene now in our heads. And just reading very briefly again from verse 18. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. And so we have these people um, not wanting to hear from God again. And then he even goes further in, in this and, and says that Moses himself was terrified and said he trembled with fear. And some of these additional details come from the parallels. Uh, Moses being scared himself is in Deuteronomy 9 and verse 19, for example. But you can see, hopefully now in Hebrews, that this is a reference to the inauguration, the authenticating of the new covenant. And... So with all of this picture now in mind, what is he saying? Let's look at closely at the text in Hebrews. Four, remembering the value, the lack of value that Esau placed in his birthright. The danger is that they're not going to place value in what they have. What do they have? Well, first, what do they not have? Four, you have not come. You have not come to this. So from verses 18 to 21, he's dealing with the negative. What we do have, what is our birthright, what does belong to us, that's verses 22 to 24. What we don't have, though, is in 18 to 21. And we don't have this. Now, isn't it intriguing, and it links so nicely with Esau, that he says, you have not come to what may be touched. Now, when you first read that, that seems strange. 
Should it not say, you have not come to what may not be touched? Because the mountain is the thing that can't be touched, right? And yet here, he says, you've not come to what may be touched. Why does he say that? Well, because you can touch the mountain. You're just told not to. There is a physical mountain that you can touch, but don't touch it because you'll die. But you can touch it, but you shouldn't. That's the point, okay? So like, like with Esau, there's this opportunity that shouldn't be taken. That's the idea. There are decisions that can be made that are wrong. And he's saying, this whole scene, this opportunity to touch a mountain, to do what's wrong, to be punished, the smoke, the fear, the danger, the, 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 all of this um, is painting a picture that, let's, let's just be frank, it's not attractive. I mean, I remember from my days many years ago, as a young Christian involved in the very extremes of the charismatic church and involved in what we call charismania, the kind of nutty stuff. And I can remember that there was this constant cry, Lord, we want to see your presence. No, you don't. <laughs> the people who were there were shivering and fearful. Moses was like, I don't want to be here. This is, this is scary. I don't want to be doing this role, this job. The people are like... We've heard your voice now, Yahweh. You don't have to bother speaking to us again. You just talk to Moses. That's good. He, he'll let us know. You just talk to Moses. We don't want to experience this ever again. This is a picture of something that is not attractive, not something they desire. It's a picture of terror. It's a picture of death. And it's a picture of condemnation. It's a picture of being able to touch a mountain and die. But you have not come to that. And what he's doing to them, he's saying, look, you want an old covenant system that you're familiar with? You want to go back to the sacrifices? Do you understand what this whole package is? Do you not remember how it came about? This is not what you are part of. And so, in these verses that we've read, in verses 18 through 21, the sight terrified Moses, he trembled with fear, the mountains trembled, and this is a picture of an old covenant that is no longer in effect. And again, I, I mention this occasionally as we keep going through this topic, so much of the church still wants their old covenant. They want to, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to have the trembling mountain I don't want to have the, um, the, 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 um, the prohibition against bacon, because I like my bacon, and I, and I don't want to have some of the other stricter aspects of Mosaic law, but I, I'd like to have Sabbath still, and I'd like to have tithing. Oh, not a Sabbath like that Sabbath, but a different day, and none of a stoning to death if I break it. But I, I want to keep these different things, but only the bits that I want. This is exactly what he's addressing here. He's saying, you can't go back to the temple and make the sacrifices and not remember the whole package, how it began, what it's all about. This is a covenant of death, a covenant of terror. And Paul makes exactly the same point in, um, in uh, uh, the letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, and, and don't turn there, I'll just turn there real quick, but 2 Corinthians chapter 3, there's a whole section about the condemnation of the old covenant. And he says, the, if the ministry of death 
carved in letters on stone, that was coming up in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, came with such glory that the Israelite could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? What we have is so much better. And he speaks of, um, in verse 3 of that text, he speaks of, um, sorry, not verse 3, verse 6. He has made us to be competence of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And he's making, and you can go and read 2 Corinthians 3 at some time, these contrasts between the covenant of death, a covenant of life, a covenant of letters, a covenant of the spirit. He's making these contrasts, and he's making a similar point to the author of Hebrews. That this is a, the old covenant was a covenant of death, of condemnation, of fear, of terror. And it is not what we've come to. Rather, in verse 22, but, there's the contrast, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, uh, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Oh boy. Okay, let's unpack all of this. Here we go. The picture he's just painted in the negative section is of all of these Israelites gathered and coming to the base of Mount Sinai and seeing the glory of God. He says, that's not you. That's not you. But in contrast, notice how he talks of Mount Zion. He talks of this heavenly city. He's already referenced it in chapter 11 and verse 10. He's going to mention it again in chapter 13 and verse 4. And if you want to know more about this heavenly city and see it in great detail, you've got the whole of Revelation 21 and the first few verses of Revelation 22. He calls it here the Mount Zion in heaven, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. But what he's doing is he's painting a picture. Just as there was a tabernacle in heaven, do you remember that in Hebrews 9 and 10? There's a tabernacle in heaven, so there is a Jerusalem in heaven, a temple in heaven. And Revelation 21 talks about the heavenly Jerusalem descending from heaven. And that is where we're going to end up. We, like the Israelites, are going to be gathered in front of a mountain. Not Mount Sinai, the heavenly Mount Zion. And the glory, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, is going to be so much greater and so he's basically saying to them in a kind of, as an illustration, in a colloquial sense, he's basically saying to them, wrong mountain, guys. Wrong mountain. You're not at Mount Sinai where you touch it and you die. You're not there where there's this mountain that can be touched and there's all the consequences of it, where there's this terror, where there's this separation between God and man. God comes to the top of the mountain, so you don't touch the mountain. The mountain trembles. Everything is there is designed to scare you because you are separate from God. You have to go and wash and sanctify and consecrate yourself ready just to be at the base of the mountain that you can't touch. You've got a different kind of mountain. 
You've got a mountain that is Mount Zion, which is part, which is where is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And what else is there in this heavenly Jerusalem? Innumerable angels in festal gathering. Basically, there's a whole bunch of angels celebrating. Angelic beings there gathered celebrating. Get all those pictures of wings out of your head. That's the cherubim and the seraphim. We're talking about people, um, not human, but who take human form, messengers of God, innumerable, gathered around. There's going to be a whole bunch of worshippers there that aren't human, but may well seem to be. There is then also, verse 23, the assembly of the firstborn, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, this is a little bit tricky. There seems to be a lot contextually in this passage that is speaking specifically, obviously, to this group of believers who are the first generation of Jews who are going from old covenant worship to new covenant worship. So in a sense, it might specifically refer to them when it refers to them as the firstborn. Um, the same phrase is used of Jews in James chapter 1 and verse 18. Um, and again, we have a similar dilemma there. Does that refer to the church as a whole or does it refer to this first generation of Jewish believers? And I, I, I don't, I'm not confident enough to really be definitive one way or the other. But certainly here, we have an assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and it seems to be referring to the church generally, if perhaps to them specifically as the beginning of the church. And so the church will be um, assembled there, at the heavenly Jerusalem. We will be there. We have been enrolled. I do like that phrase. We've been enrolled in heaven. Our name is on the list. We'll be allowed to turn up. Enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. God is there going to be there on Mount Zion. Now I want you to notice what's being said here. There is the connection with Exodus 19. God showed up on Mount Sinai, but they were separate from God. And now God is going to be there. And God is the judge of all. There is no implication here that he is separate from them, that judgment has been at this point made. And notice also, he says, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, if the church was referenced previously, who are the spirits of the just made perfect? And I think this is important and I think it's significant. You could say that the firstborn are just them and that the, the spirits of the just made perfect are the rest of the church, but I think that makes too broad a distinction. I don't see that in the text and where these phrases are used elsewhere in scripture. I think that rather what we have is we have the church being referenced first with perhaps a specific mention of them as firstborn, but nevertheless the church. And then here we have a reference to Old Testament saints, to those who were there. And you see how relevant this is to these people in this context. They're like, well, you know, 
Abraham, he, you know, he made sacrifices. Moses instituted the covenants and we're just doing the sacrifices that Moses did. All of the prophets kept these sacrifices as well. These are the kind of excuses to go back to old covenant, which is why we had Hebrews 11. And no, 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 you want to follow in Abraham's footsteps. You want to follow in Moses' footsteps. You want to follow in the footsteps of these great saints, then you be faithful and you do what God's told you to do because that's what they did. And so this is all part of the broader context. And so he's saying to them, he's saying, when you come to Mount Zion, all those Old Testament saints, those who were there for the Old Covenant, those who were there before the Old Covenant, all of those who have been made perfect, who trusted by faith, and they have been made perfect now by God, the judge of all, they are going to be there as well. Can you imagine that gathering around that mountain? Us, the church of all history, all the Old Testament saints before the church, innumerable angels, and the presence of God. And who else? Verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. We're done with the old covenant in its entirety. It's over. It's finished. That whole system, that whole structure, Mount Sinai, the inauguration, the fear of death, it's all gone. Why? Because there is a new mediator. This phrase in this context is important. What did we read about in, in Exodus 19? We saw in Exodus 19 a mediator. Hey, Moses, come up and speak with me. But no one else can touch the mountain. And now, at this mountain, at Mount Zion, in the heavenly mountain, in the heavenly Jerusalem, what's the situation there? The God who has judged all is just there. Why? Because Jesus is there and he's the mediator. He has bridged the gap between us and God. He has dealt with the issue of our sin, which is the very next thing, thing that is spoken of. The final thing on the list, in the, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus has shed his blood. So God has judged us on the basis of that shared blood. So we come to a mountain that can be touched. We come to a mountain where we gather together with all people of all ages. All the believing throng, the holy angels of heaven. And we're all gathered there at that time of worship. And he says, that's what you've got. That is your mountain for new covenant believers, that's what you've got. Why would you want to go back? And I love the reference to Abel here. I think it's a deliberate kind of uh, double reference, as it were. It'll play on the, on the concept of Abel. Firstly, Abel was the one, I remember the story of Cain and Abel. Abel was, was the one who, had, who kept the livestock for sacrifices. Because right from the fall, there was a need for blood sacrifice. And so here, he's referencing not just back to the Old Covenant, he's referencing right, right, right back to the beginning. And saying right from the beginning, once sin came into the world, there was a need of blood sacrifice because of the sin of the people. What is there in the heavenly Jerusalem? What is there at Mount Zion? 
there is the sprinkled blood of Christ. The only sacrifice that will ever be needed. But also, do you remember when God confronts Cain after the murder of Abel? He says, speaks of his blood crying out. This is a reference to sin. This is a reference to sin and the need for sacrifice. It's a reference to um, an old covenant system where there's this constant reminder of our constant sin and our constant rebellion. And now, at this mountain, it's all gone. And so he says to them, why would you want to go back? Why would you want something so much less? And so we end this morning with just this thought as we follow the argument from Esau to this section. And I imagine we'll be talking about similar things next time as well to some degree. But recognize who we are. Recognize what we have. We are Christians. We are those who by faith have trusted in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Our sins have been removed. Have been we've been cleansed from our sin. We stand before God with no distance, no gap. We can draw near to the throne of grace. He has given us, as part of our new covenant blessings, the indwelling Holy Spirit who enables us to be able to live the righteous lives that the Old Testament saints as a whole could never live. He has empowered us by his Spirit to walk as we should until the day when he completes his redemption and we are finally removed from sin and sin is removed from us for all time. And he says to us, in the midst of trials, in the midst of discipline, in the midst of difficulties, trust me. And every time we don't trust him, every time, rather than bowing before Yahweh, we trust in other gods, every time we trust in anything other than Christ, any time we make him insufficient, Every time we think that somehow that Christ and the grace of God is not enough to take us through our lives, every time we do that, we are turning away from our heritage. Every time we do that, we're like Esau. We're like Esau saying, you know what? That stew looks mighty good. And I'm really hungry. And it's just sin. We sin all the time. God will forgive me. And we make our excuses. We make our excuses because we don't recognize how great the prize. We don't recognize how great the reward for faithfulness. We don't recognize. That moment when you need to say no and you don't, is a reward 
for all eternity that is lost for a brief moment of ease, satisfaction, pleasure, whatever it is. This text before us this morning is a reminder of who we are. We're not old covenant saints. We're not unbelievers. We're new covenant believers who will gather before the throne, gather before the mountain, gather before the heavenly city, and all sin will be removed and all be made right. And we have that to come. We have that assured. And it is our job and our duty right now, this day, and every day that God gives us, to live our lives with our goal, with our destination in our minds. Let's live that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this reminder of the the blessings that we have. That we could be Old Testament saints, sacrificing animals without your spirit, And yet, you've given us this awesome privilege, empowering us to say no to sin, empowering us to to continue in our journey of discipline and maturity that we might become more like Jesus Christ. And so we simply ask, Lord, help us to be faithful. May we walk by faith and not by sight. May we trust in you in the darkest of times. And may our destination be ever in our minds. That one day this world, this earth, its pleasures, its cares, its trials will all be gone. And we'll stand before Mount Zion with the heavenly host and the saints of all ages and worship the lamb whose blood was shed for our sin. In his name we pray. Amen.